Hi, and welcome to This Week in Sustainability, where you get some of the most important news and a bit of analysis and some of my opinion on all things sustainable. Well, this week, The Guardian rejects all fossil fuel adverts. General Motors goes electric. And the World Economic Forum in Davos Conference, well, that's over. But a billion trees and carbon are still in the news. Goldman Sachs, it thinks one woman on a board of directors is enough. And KFC goes all meatless. Well, let's get right into it. Well, Malcolm X, he once said, if you're not careful, the newspapers will have you hating the people who are being oppressed and loving the people who are doing the oppressing. Now, that was in the 1960s, I think, if I recall properly. Now, with social media, just times that statement by N to the millionth. Uh, that's why this, week, uh, this week's decision by the Guardian newspaper to not allow any more fossil fuel-related ads in their newspaper was a gigantic win for the sustainability tribe. It's a huge win. It's the writing on the wall for big oil and adverts. I hope so. Maybe if Greta and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez were in charge. And they're not yet, but there are rumblings. As This Week in Sustainability reported last December, there have been a spate of high-profile legal cases both in the UK and the United States against big oil for misleading advertising. Now, shutting down big oil's access to mass media advertising would certainly be a giant step towards being able to consistently tell the truth about their nasty product. And with luck... We can change big oil to big, clean energy. Wouldn't that be fantastic? We did it with tobacco. We can do it with big oil. Investors are souring so fast on big oil, even the conservative stock picker Chuck Kramer is on the train. Fossil fuels, he said on Friday, I'm done. I'm done with them. They're dead. I'm out of here. Well, last week I did a roundup of uh, World Economic Forum Conference in Davos. Uh, it was held last week. It finished up last week, in fact. And, and the big question is, did it mean anything at all? And I concluded, yes. <laughs> I surprised myself. It seems we have made some inroads towards a more sustainable economy. And by we, I mean governments and corporations. They have moved, notably, closer to sustainable, but still no surprises at Davos. You can check my review out uh, at a preview and a review out of, of Davos at the sustainablecentury.net. If we look past the perennial critiques of Davos, it's a gab fest, it's no action, elite preening, some good ideas, some ridiculous ideas, and some dangerous ideas too, but no little, uh, little to no real impact on the ground. Well, all this is demonstrably too, let's face it. And we are a long ways from a sustainable economy. But to be fair to Davos, it really isn't about a fix. As I said last week in This Week in Sustainability, it's really just a great big wall. It's a great big wall that uh, the people with the most political and economic power to change things that are going wrong in this world uh, can throw global problem-solving ideas against, against the wall to see if it sticks. And on retrospect, I thought, well, maybe this analogy is only partially true, partially describes Davos. I think more it's kind of a conference, and, and, and that's from the word to confer. And I looked it up. In the most traditional sense, it means to su the summoning of ideas together to compare and consult. Looking past all the unimportant preening, posturing, postulating, and posturing, the remarkable and the uninformed, it's possible to see some good things coming out of Davos. Uh, there's a pattern of thoughts and ideas and actions coalescing around a coherent core of ideas, organizations, and strategies for confronting the crisis of climate, biodiversity, and inequality. 
I am so surprised. Now, not all was perfect, that's for sure. Rupert Reed uh, uh, was in Davos representing the Extinction Rebellion, Go XR, and he wrote me with some thoughts. He said, corporate and some political leaders remain wedded to growthism, profits, and change that happen primarily through techno fixes. They still think they can have it all, even as they are fascinatingly pleased that uh, the Extinction Rebellion is doing what it does because it kind of gives them permission space to move about and to act. And yet, uh, Rupert reports, most dangerously, they are really wedded to 2050 instead of acting now. Now, uh, there is some bleak hope. Hope, hope is hope. And we might see some meaningful movement towards addressing the existential sustainability trifecta challenges of climate crisis, biodiversity, and the equality crisis. Mahima Shukthev, director at Zinteo, a senior and a senior advisor at GIST Impact, she was also at Davos, and she too believes there's been some advances, particularly on climate change, but only in the uh, simplest terms. This was the year that climate change became mainstream at Davos. And climate literacy was at an all-time high. Every business leader and celebrity had done their homework on climate change. But a little knowledge is a dangerous thing. And there's this toddler-like enthusiasm now, which is great, but it needs to be channeled correctly. There was a lot of hype around this Plant a Trillion Trees initiative, for instance, which is very positive, but it can't be seen as the sole silver bullet solution to all of our climate woes. There also wasn't much acknowledgement of the interconnectedness between these issues, which I found a bit frustrating, like the fact that climate change is worsening inequality and inequality is also leading to more climate change, or that the livelihoods of the global poor are threatened by biodiversity loss. Some of that complexity is just, you know, it's left out in a forum like Davos. Now, despite the baby steps, I sense a converging of ideas starting to make sense of possible systems changes. Not necessarily, as Mahima points out, the how part of systems change. Ah, that doesn't matter. The how part, the sustainability tribe has known how to do this for a long time. And we've got most of the pieces in place. Sure, we need some resources to refine them, but we have most of the things in place that we need now. Uh, it's the why part that has moved. More people now believe carbon-free, more equal, and more naturally vibrant economy is not only necessary, not only possible, but perhaps it's in their best interest. Now, Larry Elliott uh, of The Guardian, The Great Guardian, wrote a great report on Davos uh, last week, and he said this, the story was not the near unanimity among policymakers, but the financial sector, including some of the big banks from Wall Street, they now understand the investment risks of global heating and starting, and they are starting to adjust to that behavior. That was a notable, almost remarkable shift, one that didn't start at Davos, but it was notable that for the first time at Davos, there was a sense that the sustainability possibility dial moved just a fraction of the inch towards real sustainable action. Now, will financiers, big corporations, regulators, and consumers uh, confront the sustainability trifecta? Uh, or will things remain anecdotal? You know, just a lot of really good things going on, but not enough in terms of systemic change going on. Now, will the ideas and actions that we heard coalesce or seem to coalesce at Davos and elsewhere come together fast enough to scale meaningful change? I'm with Mahima. 
Will ideas and action come together fast enough to scale meaningful change? I hope they will, but I don't think they will come from this bunch of people coming together at Davos for the simple reason that this group has a clear incentive to maintain the status quo. And we know that to tackle climate change, we need a fundamental disruption to the status quo. Historically, this Davos crowd has resisted disruption. So it'll be interesting to see what they do now. Will they use obfuscation and distraction as a tactic? Will they actually support change coming from the outside? Or will they step aside and make way? Now, I invite you to check out the World Economic Forum website or The Guardian's excellent recap of what we learned at Davos 2020. So uh, while you're there, remember to support The Guardian. It's uh, free to all readers, and it is the best large circulation media for sustainability news out there. There was some very cool news this week out of Detroit when General Motors announced that it was going to invest $2.2 billion into its Hamtrak uh, plant there in Detroit, making it the first all-electric production plant for the company. The, per, uh, the plant's going to produce electric trucks and SUVs. Uh, when operational, it will maintain or create more than 2,200 jobs, according to GM. And this is at a time when employment in the auto sector is down 18% uh, over the last year. It's not just cars either. GM also recently announced a $2.3 billion joint venture with LG Chem to produce batteries for its vehicles. They will be produced at a greenfield site in, uh, in Ohio and create another 1,100 jobs. Those are jobs that never existed before. Those are clean jobs. Those are green jobs. Those are green economy jobs. These are real gains. No wonder the business insider reported last week that Venture Capitals, those guys with big nose for future markets, invested two billion, a record $2 billion in battery tech startups in the last year alone. So welcome to the future, GM. Let's pop a cork to GM and the green economy. Speaking of storage, let's talk carbon storage. Many in the sustainability tribe are talking about how planting a trillion trees might just get us out of the carbon mess we're in. And a lot of people like the idea because it requires no change in the way we produce and consume. It's kind of a simple sell in that way. And a, a planting a lot of trees has quite a lot of merit. But the science of a trillion trees, it's not that straightforward. It's not just like you go out there and plant a bunch of trees. Remember, trees only store, only store carbon. When they die or a branch falls off and rots, uh, the carbon right back up into the air. And that carbon can stay in the air for many, many decades, decades, centuries even. And that means the net carbon capture of trees is not as high as often advertised. And it also turns out that offsetting carbon through tree planting and forest conservation is not really all that easy to do. This week, I read a great article. It was forwarded by Jed Emerson uh, at Blended Value on Twitter, a, a real thoughtful, uh, philosophical kind of impact guy. You should, you should check him out and follow him. He sent an article talking about forest-based carbon offsets. It was published in Pro Progressa. Uh, this week by the Pulitzer Prize winning Lisa Song. Great reporter. She was in Acre. It's a state in northwestern Brazil, home to a great big chunk of the Amazon forest. And that rainforest, as we all know, is under threat from development. It's under threat from development by rich agro-industrialists who want to profit by making it at one big giant farm. And by a lot of poor people who simply just want to make a living from it. Now, in the absence of regulations and restrictions from the jar 
uh, Bolsonaro government in, in, in Brazil, big corporations do what they want. And in the absence of viable economic alternatives, the poor, well, they do what they have to do. What happens? The rainforest is getting destroyed at a record rate. Now, Song was in the Acre to find out what a lot of the sustainability folks had known for some time. Forest carbon offsets had good intentions, but only kind of work. Now, she cited a report that, that finds between 85% and 90% of forest-based offset programs had a low likelihood of creating real impacts. That is offsetting carbon. Uh, yes, let's not get crazy here, but the theory of forest offset, it actually works. That's sound. Trees suck carbon out of the air and then they store it. But getting trees into the ground or conserving a forest, well, that's a different problem altogether. That's a management problem, and it's a bigger problem and challenge than we originally thought. It's a convoluted and sometimes messy political, social, cultural mess. Uh, and this is changing, but historically, there have been no good means to ensure that the trees that the offsetting service provides are getting planted or the forest that they say are, is being saved is being saved. There's been a whole lot of graft, a lot of corruption, and a whole lot of inexperience managing offset programs. Yes, let's plant trees, and yes, let's use offset, offsetting services that plant trees. But you just have to read Song's amazing article to learn a bit more. Thanks again, Jed, for sending that along. You can go to propublica.go and look for an even more inconvenient truth, and that's by Lisa Song. And if you want to learn more about carbon offsetting for individuals, there's lots of services out there that make this available in one, two, three easy clicks. But uh, be careful to make sure that the service that you do use uh, has done, done its science. I like the gold standard not only for its certified programs and accountability structures, but for its impressive choice of uh, projects or projects that you can choose, including everything from stoves to reforestation, forest protection, heating, etc., etc. And they're all over the globe. It's really easy. My family just offset 12 tons of carbon this year. Uh, we uh, put our carbon offsets in the Utsilnya, I had to read that one, right? Healthy homes for Mexico, Guatemala, and Honduras. We wanted to keep it local. Well, it turned out to be a bit of a good week for women, or perhaps just a good week for public relations and Goldman Sachs. Now, two weeks ago in this week in sustainability, we gave the Sustainability Laggard Award to BlackRock, the humongous $7 trillion investment bank for a failure to excise like a bad tooth fossil fuels from its portfolio. But not to be outdone, uh, the recipient of this week's lagger is Goldman Sachs. Now, Goldman Sachs is another huge U.S. investment bank. And it said this week it would only invest in companies with at least one woman on its board of directors. Wow. Well, that's a great thing, right? Yeah, it is. But when you think about it, one woman, that's just 12% of the average American board of directors. How radical is that? We all know that diversity is important. Diversity uh, at the board and the executive level, including women, makes companies smarter and better. There are so many sources of that. I'll let you Google it yourself. Uh, Why do we even have to reference this stuff anymore? And finally, in the world of meatlessness, uh, we all love the taste we grew up with, right? What's your comfort food? Mine? <laughs> it's a little bit embarrassing. It's almost as embarrassing as one of the my favorite music groups, which we'll skip. It's craft dinner. I know. The perfect refined garbage food. 
but I love it. I grew up with it. It's what I love. It, it, so it's so important that what we get our kids to love when they're growing up are, are good things, organic, natural, local. But that's not going to happen entirely. I, I, I'm an optimist, but I'm no fool. And that's why I think it's really great to hear this week that KFC is jumping on the Beyond Meat wagon and it will be testing out its No Chicken Chicken Nugget in February in about 100 stores around North Carolina and Tennessee. The Nugget was developed especially for KFC by Beyond Meat and it had Mark Wilson reporting in Fast Company absolutely swooning. He said, it tastes like a doggone piece of chicken and not just any piece of chicken, but KFC chicken with hints of all those wonderful 11 herbs and spices. Well, if it's that good, it's going to bring a whole new meaning to my uh, favorite Zach Brown band song, uh, Chicken Fried. <laughs> Anyways, more importantly, it's further proof that alternative meat market is definitely on the rise. In fact, it's set to grow at unprecedented rates. Some say it's going to be over $150 billion in a decade or so. That's not small, even compared to today's $1 trillion global meat market. Now, I hope it's an understatement because uh, beef-related carbon alone in the United States is $1.2 billion tons. Wow, that's a lot. Anyways, back to KFC. Now, you should know that for every kilo of KFC meatless nuggets or chickenless nuggets that you eat, I dare you to eat a kilo of those babies in one sitting, you would produce 30 times less carbon uh, than meat on average and half of what you would produce eating chicken alone. What I like best about all this is that, well, you know, kids who are vegans or vegetarians and they grow up, you know, drinking oatmeal milk or eating meatless meat or these kinds of options, and they don't know the difference. They're their favorite foods. And so my question is, will KFC chickenless nuggets become my grandchildren's comfort food? I'm hoping for fried butter squash and quinoa porridge, but you never know. If it is KFC meatless nuggets, at least it's not steak or craft dinner. <laughs> Anyways, if you're interested in learning more about carbon and meat, check out the Food and Agricultural Organization of the United Nations. It's got a great review of meat markets and related carbon emissions. Talks about all the growth uh, into the future of those markets. Well, that's it for this week. Uh, thanks for listening. I'm Mark D'Souza Shields. I'm the host of This Week in Sustainability. If you want to learn more about how you can bring more sustainability into your life, check out the sustainablecentury.net where you'll find videos, podcasts, articles, and even a few DIY projects. And remember, it's up to you, it's up to us to make this a happier and healthier world.